All right. Uh, we are continuing. I've totally lost track of how many sessions we're up to. Um, but uh, now nah, we're 50. Have, haven't hit 60 yet? No, oh. we haven't hit 60. Oh, okay. We're, well. we're at 58. 58. All right. Uh, church history sessions. Um, and uh, we are still in... Uh, Wir sind in Deutschland heute. Um, uh, we are in the German uh, German Reformation uh, currently with uh, uh, Brother Martin. And uh, last time we were together, we uh, discussed the uh, disputatio that took place uh, in uh, Leipzig. And you will recall, I hope, uh, that one of the uh, primary, well, the primary opponent that Luther faced. Luther and uh, Andreas Karlstadt represented the University of Wittenberg, and the University of Leipzig was represented by Mamma Nev Johann Eck. And uh, Eck was a brilliant guy, a brilliant debater. Eck won the debate uh, by not debating indulgences, but by debating papal pronouncements. He moved from the issue uh, of indulgences to authority. I can almost guarantee you that's what's going to happen uh, June 4th in uh, Dublin as well, uh, not Dublin, uh, Belfast, uh, when I uh, debate a Roman Catholic apologist on the exact same issue uh, of indulgences. Um, and um, uh, it's going to go back to the issue of authority and the church's authority to define these things and so on and so forth. And so this is where uh, Luther is uh, very strongly challenged to think through the foundations of his uh, theology. It's one thing to come to the conclusion of justification by faith. Uh, it's, uh, it's another thing to deal with the claims of uh, the papacy and that being the foundation of those, uh, those beliefs. And so uh, if you're thinking about the solas of the Reformation, which of course is a backward-looking uh, definition. In other words, we looked back into history and looking at Reformation teaching have said, ah, we here are the key issues in the form of solas. Uh, so the what's called the uh, material principle of the Reformation, that which made up the the matter of the proclamation, uh, is called sola fide, faith alone as the mechanism of justification not faith plus penances and works and sacraments and so on and so forth, but uh, sola gratia, grace alone, sola fide, faith alone. Faith alone is the material principle of the Reformation. The formal principle, that which gives form to the Reformation, however, is sola scriptura, scripture as the sole infallible rule of faith of the church. And it is in uh, Leipzig especially that Luther is forced to begin to uh, see this and to formulate it in a in a clearer uh, fashion. Um, we have in the past, over the past more than a year, we've been doing this study now. Uh, seen early church fathers uh, who had enunciated the concept of sola scriptura, uh, but that obviously had become eclipsed by the tradition of the church during the medieval period. And so now you see one of those issues in the Reformation uh, returning us back to that. It, it is an issue for every generation of the church. Uh, 
Um, it is certainly uh, uh, an issue in our generation as well, not just in the sense of possible other religious authorities being brought in, uh, but especially in our day, simply in the idea of the existence of Scripture at all, the existence of Revelation at all, is unfortunately, um, if, you, if you truly believe that God has given special revelation over against mere uh, general revelation in creation, uh, you are in a minority now amongst those who would call themselves Christians around the world, especially a minority in the theological positions being enunciated in seminaries and things like that. So, um, so as I mentioned, when uh, Luther is traveling back from Leipzig, um, he is very uh, pensive, he is very thoughtful as to what has taken place during that time. It was a very uh, important uh, encounter. But upon returning to Wittenberg, he found himself a, a popular hero, uh, with offers of protection coming in from armed camps that were opposed to papal influences, again, the rise of nationalism and things like that. Uh, you might refer to them as sort of the uh, state militias of the old world, in a, in a sense. And um, uh, he's not really sure how to handle uh, that kind of thing. And so he begins to write, and uh, 1520 especially, uh, is the year of Luther's uh, explosion of, we would call them pamphlets or booklets. They weren't extensively long in, uh, in nature. But um, you can see all of these books. I have pictures of them. I, if I had taken the time to bring the computer and set up the projector and all the rest of that stuff, I'd, I'd uh, show you some of this stuff. Um, but you can see all of them if you ever visit uh, Wittenberg uh, in the, in the uh, Luther House there. Uh, they have most of these pamphlets, uh, original editions uh, on display that you can uh, take, a, take a look at. Uh, in uh, May, he publishes his Sermon on Good Works. Uh, and then in June, the Papacy at Rome. In August, the Address to the German Nobility, which had a lot of... Uh, political and social ramifications to it. Um, in September, the Babylonian captivity of the church, likewise along those lines. And in November, uh, a book that I uh, read through last year, uh, The Freedom of the Christian Man, which is a, a wonderful, uh, very pastoral. Uh, there really wouldn't be uh, anything that you would find, I think, objectionable um, in um, in the freedom of the Christian man especially, it's, it remains, uh, I think, a relevant and useful uh, work uh, to this, uh, this day. Uh, these works all showed how deep the split had become for Luther, especially because of the disputation in Leipzig. Um, these are Protestant works in the true sense of the word, even though the term Protestant didn't exist yet. Uh, if you want to know when the term Protestant originated, it's 1529. So we're only in 1520. So it's that the term's going to come about a decade later. Uh, but in the sense of showing a conceptual break on Luther's part uh, with Rome and with the papacy, uh, all of these books. And these are going to be the primary books that, when he is tried before Charles at the Diet of Worms, are going to be um, on the table 
and he's going to be asked if he will renounce what is in these books. And it's especially to that book, The Freedom of the Christian Man, that Luther is referring to. And he says, how, how can I renounce all these things? There's many things in them that even my worst opponents will admit are true and Christian and valid. And, and uh, you know, how can I renounce the things that everyone agrees are non-renounceable? Um, these are going to be the books that are going to, um, going to be there. Now, on June 15th of 1520, uh, the Pope promulgated the bull. Now, if you have promulgated the bull, that sounds interesting. Um, uh, if you have watched uh, the videos, and if you're visiting, I apologize, jumping in the middle of things, but there's really nothing you can do about that when you're doing a whole series on church history. But uh, as we started the section on the Reformation, I uh, recommended to the class that you take the time. They're free on YouTube, so pretty much everybody has access to these things. Um, watching uh, a couple of videos, and you still have time to watch the radicals because it's going to take us a while to get to the Anabaptists, but um, especially to watch the BBC production Martin Luther Heretic uh, or the 2004 uh, Martin Luther movie, either one will both, if you had time, uh, would, be, uh, would be fine. Um, you will see uh, the uh, rather dramatic representation of the promulgation of this papal bull um, by Leo X, uh, and it's entitled Exerge Domine, Exerge Domine, Arise, O Lord, um, a wild boar has broken out in your vineyard, um, and it is a, a bull of excommunication against Martin Luther. And uh, Luther received the bull on October 10th. And he was given 60 days uh, to submit to that bull. Instead, 60 days later, on December 10th, uh, at a, an oak that is no longer there, but other oaks have grown in its place. It's a long time for oaks to live for 500 years in Germany. Um, but as you, uh, if you take the train to Wittenberg and, and get off at the stop there, as you walk toward the main street uh, where the Luther House is, and then on the other side of, of the town square is where the castle church is. Uh, but if you walk that direction, you will pass a little corner. And if you look closely, you'll see a, there is a plaque there that will tell you. But uh, it sort of goes down a little bit, sort of a, a depression. There is actually a running trail that goes sort of through there. Uh, I've mapped out most of the running trails in Wittenberg. Um, got to teach there last year in May, so I was sort of trying to figure out where to run. The cobblestones are not fun to run on, uh, so it's uh, best to find something else. Anyway... Um, uh, there is a little depression there uh, next uh, in, in this area. There's some oak trees, and at sort of the first corner you come to, and uh, this is where uh, Luther joined a group of enthusiastic students who were burning Roman theological works and burned the papal bull along with them. And so, uh, you know, the video presentation, a movie presentation is him holding it up over the flames and by this bull I am condemned by Rome 
by this bowl, Rome stands condemned before God. And then you throw it into flames and it burns. And, and uh, there you go. He had already, uh, in November, uh, published a tract titled Against the Execrable Bull of Antichrist. <laughs> so he's not, not really trying to get along real well uh, at this point with, uh, with the Pope. Though years later, years later, there is still... Um, some hope on his part, maybe of some type of reformation uh, within Rome itself, but um, that's going to come, I think, with some political uh, developments to take place a little bit later on. Now, you may recall I mentioned that Maximilian, uh, the emperor of the Holy Roman Empire, had died. This is one of the reasons that Rome and the state were slow to move against uh, Luther, and that Charles V had been elected as Holy Roman Empire, as Holy Roman Emperor, and had promised upon his election to give a hearing to anyone before condemning them. And so on November 4th, uh, Charles agreed to hear Luther at the upcoming Diet of Worms. Now, the Holy Roman Empire uh, was governed by an emperor, but there were electors uh, who would meet in diets uh, every few years. Um, I, I think there's wisdom in that. Can you imagine how much better things would be if Congress only met every few years? <laughs> um, uh, just think about how much smaller the budget would be uh, if, uh, if Congress only met every few years. Um, and that's what they did, partly, obviously, in those days because of how uh, long it took you to travel from one place to, uh, to another. And... Um, so the Diet of Worms was scheduled for the early part of 1521. Uh, it actually opened on January 27th of 1521. Um, the Diet had to take up the situation with Luther as the papacy was pushing for enforcement of Luther's excommunication. The German delegation, as a whole, uh, strongly resisted, and given that it was Frederick's vote that had gotten Charles elected, uh, Charles agreed to allow Luther to appear before the Diet, promising him, now listen, promising him safe conduct to and from the meeting. Mm -hmm. Now, I say listen, because if you're thinking back, it wasn't all that long ago uh, that we encountered another figure in church history that had likewise been given safe conduct and safe passage. Uh, to a major meeting, um, and that was the Council of Constance, and the individual was Jan Hus. And you remember what happened to Jan Hus. Uh, he was burned at the stake by the Council of Constance. And so um, this did uh, now cross Luther's mind, now that he had become significantly more aware of Huss's beliefs, uh, he certainly was aware of the fact that Huss had been given uh, safe conduct, promise of safe conduct. And so uh, it is very clear from his letters uh, that Luther, in going to the Diet of Worms, uh, expects to die. Um, he ex expects this is going to be his, his fate in, uh, in going. Um, so Many people 
said, many people in, in Germany said to Luther, don't be an idiot. Uh, don't go. Uh, you know, and it is said, the, the, again, so much of this is somewhat legendary, but many of the legends do have at least a germ of, of truth in them. It is uh, said that uh, as Luther rode in a, uh, in a cart to Worms, uh, especially, obviously, while he's in friendly areas, there are crowds come out to meet him. Uh, frequently they stop and he will say some words or preach a short sermon, uh, but he is uh, being greatly lauded by the German people as he's going. But as he actually enters into Worms on one of the walls next to the main road, um, someone had scrawled on the wall, uh, Luther, the Saxon Hus. Uh, Luther, the Saxon Hus. And so uh, he could not help but see this, this kind of thing, and it would uh, obviously uh, reinforce in his mind the fact that he has basically been called to die and uh, uh, that he is standing for what he has come to believe uh, to be true. And so he arrives in uh, Worms on April 16th of 1521, um, he was first called before the emperor on April 17th at 4 p.m. in the afternoon. And so, again, you've seen the dramatic portrayals of this, um, but you, uh, we, uh, we cannot go and visit uh, the building any longer. Um, it is an open field now. And uh, there is a marker um, to commemorate the location, but the building was a wooden building. Uh, wooden buildings burn easily. Uh, they didn't have fire codes uh, back in those days. And uh, that building actually stood, however, uh, from 1521 for another 168 years and was uh, burned to the ground uh, during some disturbances uh, in the city of uh, Worms. Interestingly enough, in a year that we all can easily remember, 1689. Uh, so uh, you can always remember when, what? Why is that? You don't know why that's easy to remember? If you'd, attend, if you'd attend the earlier part of the Sunday school, you would know why that's easier to remember. Uh, so, <laughs> yes, um, I did not know that until standing there this past September, and uh, uh, there was a guide guy that gave a little, little chat. It's like, uh, 1689, ha! That's funny. Uh, we had nothing to do with it. We, we didn't do it. Didn't do it. Don't blame us. Mm -mm. Uh, but uh, yeah, that's when uh, that's when it was burned down. So you can't, you know, we can't recreate uh, those scenes anymore. I mean, uh, in some of the movies, uh, they actually shot in the actual locations. So uh, we could, for example, if we did a movie, and I wish someone would on uh, the, what's called the Marburg Colloquy. We'll get to it a little bit later on. I'm, next week, probably. Um, uh, 
we could go and, and shoot in that room and, and actually recreate what that would have uh, looked like. And in the 2004 Luther movie, um, there's a scene where Luther and um, uh, Staupitz are, Luther's scrubbing the floor after he comes back from Rome in 1510, and he's very upset about what he's seen, the corruption of the church, and and uh, uh, that was shot in the hallway uh, right outside the chapel uh, where Luther was ordained. And I've got a neat picture that sort of recreates that exact spot. Uh, we had a little bit of a uh, lecture in one of the rooms right off of right off that. Um, so you, we could do that. We can't do that with this uh, this building. But if you can imagine it, uh, it probably wasn't the most brightly lit place. Uh, and so he is called in, and, and he is shown his books and asked if they are his. And this would primarily be those, those books that we were just mentioning to you. He admitted that they were. He was then asked if he would recant anything that they contained. And as, as I mentioned, one of his first responses is, well, you have to be more specific because there's obviously a tremendous amount in these books. It's just simple, basic Christian faith. I'm not, I can't recant those things. Um, it had already been decided that this was not going to be a debate, and it was not going to really be a discussion. Uh, you either recant or you're condemned, one or, or the other. And there's a lot of discussion now at this, at this point in, in history why did Luther ask for 24 hours to consider? Uh, was it uh, because he wasn't being given a chance to speak and hoped to uh, ask Frederick or someone else for more opportunity uh, to speak? Uh, was he just concerned about losing his life very quickly? Uh, what, are, what are the motivations? Well, we don't have video cameras. We don't have uh, he wasn't wearing a heart rate monitor for us to know how nervous he was uh, at that particular point in time, things like that. Uh, so we, we don't know. But he asked for 24 hours to consider. Um, we know that he did uh, uh, agonize in prayer that night. And at 6 p.m. on April 18th, appeared before the emperor once again. And as he... Uh, was once again, and, and, and this is interesting, um, the translator for the emperor was a man by the name of Johann Eck. <laughs> now, it's interesting. There are some, I have read some works of history that identify this Johann Eck as the same Johann Eck that Luther had debated in Leipzig. Other sources say, no, it was someone else the same name. Now, I, I found that to be fascinating. My assumption is that some of those sources are just assuming there could have only been one Johann Eck back then, and therefore it's the same guy. Uh, I think that would have introduced not only a really interesting dynamic, but a problematic di dynamic for, for Luther. Um, so, and besides that, I, I think you can pretty well prove that Eck was in Rome at this time anyways. Um, so it was somebody else, uh, I think, than the, the Johann Eck that would be his lifelong uh, enemy. 
but again, he's asked, and Luther again attempts to engage. He's accused of being evasive, and it is that point where you, you get his um, mini-sermon that we have heard many times, that fundamentally, if you listen to it carefully, and again, this is cobbled together from the memories, the, the, the written records of the event do not exist today. Uh, instead, you have those who are in attendance being asked questions sometimes many decades later as to what specifically was said, as well as Luther's own recollection. And basically what he, he says is since you demand a, a direct answer, then I will give you a direct answer. Um, he says it is not safe to go against one's conscience. It is clearly evident that popes and councils have contradicted each other. Now, that was sort of an accepted reality and truth in that day. It would not be after the 1870s when you have the definition of Vatican I and the concept of papal infallibility. Uh, but that hadn't developed yet, and so it was not a, an overly controversial statement to say that popes and councils have contradicted themselves. But by saying that, what Luther is saying is that there is a higher authority than popes and councils. He asks to be shown, he says, I have asked to be shown from Scripture or plain reason the errors in the books that you are demanding that I recant and you have not shown me these things. So I cannot go against conscience. I am, I am held captive by my conscience. And then some versions contain this, some do not. Some historians will say that's obviously later edition, others don't. But you, you know the, the famous line, uh, Here I stand, I can do no other. God help me. And he turns some accounts say that he raised his arms in what was a sort of Teutonic knight, yeah, uh, touchdown uh, type, uh, <laughs> type thing. Uh, I'm not sure that touchdown really would be the best way to describe it, but um, others, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> that's a new one. Uh, that's a thing. Uh, uh, yeah, mic drop. Um, <laughs> oh man, church history is going right down the tubes. It's just I take full responsibility once again. But it was appropriate. That is uh, that is sort of uh, sort of what it what it would have represented in that uh, that time period. Uh, maybe a, a little bit better of an illustration than touchdown, three pointer, something, whatever. Um, yeah, swish, nothing but net. Um, we can do all sorts of illustrations here, but we're wasting our time. Um, and uh, so he, um, he gives his final answer. Uh, the next day, uh, Charles gave his decision against Luther. The Diet, still quite behind Luther, requested what all politicians do. A committee. Yeah. <laughs> if you want to kill something, what do you do? You assign it to a committee. Ask my Presbyterian brother, and they just all like, oh, uh, it's a committee. Yeah, there we go. Um, 
So they requested a committee to examine uh, the issue. Uh, Luther left Worms on April 26th. So he, he stayed around for a while, actually. Um, and he leaves Worms on April 26th. Now, what's, what's um, interesting is the final condemnation by the Diet of Worms of Luther is not promulgated until May 26th, a month later. And at that point, almost all the uh, German electors had already left go home. This was purposeful. Um, uh, Charles is doing what he has to do in light of the pressure from Rome, but he's also allowing people like Frederick and others to, you know, have some level of deniability or yeah, I, I didn't vote for it, I wasn't there uh, type of situation. You know that there were conversations going on off the record uh, over dinner in dark rooms and things like that. It's very, you know, this is a lot of political material uh, included here. So Luther leaves April 26, and uh, there's a, a lot, you know, he's got safe conduct. But once he's back home, that safe conduct is done. And if the empire has condemned you, then the precedent is that those in charge in your local area now must do what the emperor says and arrest you and turn you over to ecclesiastical authorities um, for your condemnation and then eventually uh, your execution. Uh, but as you know, and again, this always becomes uh, dramatized in a very interesting way because no one really knows how this, how this worked out. Um, Frederick very uh, surreptitiously and secretly, so much so that he did not want to know where Luther was taken, so he could literally say, I don't know where Luther is, tells his lieutenants, his underlings, to take care of Luther. Uh, take him to a safe place, and don't let anybody know where it is. And so uh, while traveling back toward uh, Wittenberg, um, Luther is kidnapped. And the men who are traveling with Luther are not in on this. So all of a sudden, they're armed men, masked armed men that intercept them in the woods. Uh, they take Luther, and the last they see of Luther is he's on a horse riding into the woods, and boom, he's gone. So immediately, as the word spreads, there is, uh, you know, were, were they just... Highway robbers? Uh, has he been kidnapped? Was he murdered? Was he thrown down a well someplace? Um, nobody knows. And so now this becomes the great subject of discussion. Where is Luther and who has him? Well, he is taken to one of Luther, uh, one of Frederick's castles, uh, the Wartburg Castle, and in Thuringia. Uh, it is, uh, it's an impressive, uh, impressive building, I, I will have to admit. Uh, you know, this is, this might, 
this might actually be be big enough. My my screen here. I mean, not not really, but um, let me just uh, show you here real real quick. It um, if you uh, if you go uh, uh, to to Germany, I would highly recommend uh, swinging by and um, and visiting uh, the castle. Um, let's see here. Which uh, what's a good a good picture? So I've got some great pictures from up at the top. Uh, but uh, yeah, that's a that's a pretty decent one. Yeah, it's not bad. That's uh, this is the castle uh, today, Wartburg Castle, and uh, uh, you know it's not your super British style, you know, cannon sticking out the top type thing. Uh, that's not really uh, what it what it was designed to be, but uh, it's um, it certainly has a commanding uh, view of the uh, of the countryside. You can only see one of the towers there. Um, there is a uh, second tower uh, that will become uh, important at a at a later uh, time in our study when we are talking uh, about some other people. Uh, but here's the uh, the second tower, sort of hidden behind the first one at the angles we were looking at. That's me standing at the bottom of it. Um, but uh, it's it's not as big, but it is a actually um, a place where you can keep prisoners uh, buried deep inside of that. And we will talk about one of the prisoners that was kept there uh, a little bit uh, later on. So uh, Luther is taken to the Wartburg and a a fairly elaborate uh, system of secrecy is developed for him to be able to communicate with a very small select group of people. He's there for 10 months. So the 10-month, uh, with what's called the flying return to Wittenberg for just a matter of like a, a day uh, in um, December of that year. Um, but he uh, takes a new name while he's there. Uh, he takes the name of Junker Jorg, uh, Knight George. He grows out his hair and his beard uh, almost as long as the brothers over here, I suppose. Uh, not quite. Um, and um, he uh, takes on a new identity. He is hiding there. And uh, changed his look so much that he was able to travel and to actually talk with people about Luther on the way uh, when they would stop at an inn or something like that. What do you think of that Luther guy? You know, the, uh, Well, he's really interesting. Well, oh, okay. Um, I'm sorry. Not quite. No, no, no. I, I would not. I would not make that that connection at all. In fact, that's probably a heretical connection. But we'll deal with that later. Um, <laughs> anyway, um, the, now he is. What he he does during that ten months is amazing. Uh, the correspondence he keeps up, as most everybody knows. Um, the most important thing that he does during the 10 months that he's there is he translates the entirety of the New Testament uh, into German. And the Luther Bible, uh, he would later at Wittenberg with the help of Philip Melanchthon and others, uh, translate the Old Testament uh, as well and create the Luther Bible, which is so very uh, 
important in, in solidifying the German language, even to this day, just as the King James solidified English in many ways. Almost always when the Bible is first translated into a language, it, it ends up uh, having a huge impact. Um, but the Lutheran emphasis upon education, literacy, and the reading of the Bible, incredibly important uh, to the advancement of the, the German nation and the, the German people uh, as, as a whole. And if, you are, uh, if you're able to work with the original languages, you realize that the translation of the entirety of the New Testament is not a small task. And Luther had to, in essence, uh, develop a, an entire set of translational principles to, uh, to accomplish this task. And he sort of went more of an NIV route than an NASB route. And he was sort of forced to do that because there were so many different dialects of German that to try to be explicitly formal uh, or literal in your translation, sometimes there just weren't German words to do it. Now, you know, if, you're, if you know anything about German, um, what Germans tend to do when they need a new word is they just take a bunch of their old words and smack them into a really, really, really long word um, uh, that almost nobody else can actually pronounce. Um, and uh, I mean, that's that's just. Am I am I not am I speaking the truth? Yeah, that's that's. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's what I'm Yeah, well, yeah, yeah, Krankenhaus and all sorts of yeah, yeah, that's exactly. Um, <laughs> and so uh, uh, he had to, you know, he had to develop uh, develop vocabulary and translational principles, and that would have been enough. But when you look at the correspondence he was dealing with, the theological issues. Um, eventually, he's in correspondence with, with uh, Andreas Karlstadt, um, uh, with one of Frederick's right-hand men, sort of in charge of taking care of Luther, uh, Philip Melanchthon, um, using code words as to where he's going, what he's doing, and all the rest of this kind of stuff. It's fascinating to read. If you decide you want to read up on it, then let me just warn you ahead of time. Um, this is also where his letters describe his physical problems. Um, you really had to be one of you really had to be a good friend to Luther uh, to put up with this portion of his discussion. He he blamed his problems on his uh, rigorous fasting as a monk, and they both movies mention it, but very briefly and sort of on the sly, but basically the man had a case of constipation. It sounds like it should have been fatal. Um, and uh, he was in agony. Uh, I wouldn't be able to translate the New Testament uh, into any language. Um, if I was going through what Luther described, he would be going through for days and days and days on end. Um, it, it is surprising that he that he he survived uh, what he describes in these letters, and so uh, the only one other story that I'll, I'll share with you was uh, uh, at one point the men at the Wartburg um, convince him, and we know what room he stayed in. You can go in there and and uh, uh, you can you can look around. The funny thing was when when we walked in. Uh, they, uh, it, there's a big old sign right there 
that, that says um, no photographs. So, you know, being the, the good doobie that I am, um, I, I didn't get my phone out uh, and, and take a picture. My wife walks in. I said, you know, she sees the sign, takes her phone, phone out and takes a picture um, <laughs> of Luther's room uh, in, the, in the Hartburg Castle. This is where he did the translational work and uh, all the rest of that fun, fun stuff is here in this, uh, this room in the, the Hartburg Castle. It did not have a picture of him on the wall at the time. Uh, <laughs> that's, uh, that is a later, later edition, obviously. Um, but... Um, one of the, uh, uh, yeah, so I just swiped a picture from my wife uh, later on, but um, made me feel less guilty, and it's like, uh, what? So if they asked you, you could always say, I never took a picture while I was in there. No, I, I, I didn't, uh, but I do have one, so uh, two of them, actually. Anyway, um, the, the, the people at Wartburg uh, convinced Luther that he needed to get out, get some fresh air, and so uh, come hunting with us. Well, we're going we're gonna to go hunting. And Luther is like, ah, not, a, not a hunter. Uh, come on, Junker Jorg. Let's, uh, okay, okay. So, so Luther is out with these, uh, these guys, and they're hunting rabbits. And um, these hounds, uh, are, you know, they're using hounds to, to scare them up and stuff like that. Well, somewhere along the line, somehow, this frightened rabbit uh, runs up to Luther. And so Luther picks up the little bunny rabbit, and he's, you know, he's, he's holding the little, the little bunny rabbit. And the hounds come upon him, and they smell the rabbit, and he hides it in the, the big cloak, uh, the, you know, the fold of the cloak of his, uh, in his arm. Well, the hounds can smell it, and they bite in, they kill the rabbit in the sleeve of his coat. They crush it, and you probably hear the bones crushing and all the rest of that. They kill the poor rabbit uh, in the sleeve of his cloak, and he is just, so, he's mortified uh, that this cute little furry rabbit, he didn't go hunting anymore after that. Um, and, and of course, what he did is he ended up uh, using it as an illustration of his letters that, uh, uh, you know, he's the, he's the frightened rabbit uh, hiding from the, the demons of hell and the pope that... Uh, are going to crush him uh, in the, you know, uh, wherever it is he's hiding and uh, uh, comes up with a spiritual application uh, to the, the horrific uh, situation that, uh, that um, is taking place. So, um, so anyway, uh, obviously, once Luther disappears, um, things aren't just going to stay the same in Wittenberg. And so... Uh, who is sort of next in command? Well, Philip Melanchthon was a really young, young, young man. I mean, I think he became, I think he was 21 and became professor of Hebrew. So he was, he was a young guy. Um, so Andreas Karlstadt, um, who had been with Luther at Leipzig and has been, you know, he's represented in the films in a number of different ways. It's, it's a little bit, yeah. Uh, I'm not sure what that exactly means, but you, you can sort of interpret it as you wish, um, takes over and he begins radicalizing things rather quickly. And so you have iconoclasm, you have the destruction of, of, uh, of uh, images and statues, um, 
uh, Karlstadt stops wearing clerical uh, clothing, um, this type of thing. And as I mentioned to you before, he, he announces, for example, in December, uh, that he is going to give the Lord's Supper in both kinds, both the bread and the wine. The wine had been taken away from the people for hundreds of years. Uh, on uh, New Year's of, of the next year, and Frederick hears about it and says, oh, no, you're not. And so, uh, being the dutiful, obedient person, Karl Stott does it on Christmas Eve instead. And I used that story in the sermon that I preached in the Castle Church in September, because um, that's where we were, where it happened. And you, you just see the peasants flooding in there and the, the tumult that resulted and uh, some of the uh, applications from that. On December 3rd and 4th, so before that happened, December 3rd and 4th, Luther makes what's called a flying return uh, to... Wittenberg. Uh, he has heard that things are sort of spiraling out of control, and so he, he returns back, and when he's there, it's before this stuff with Karlstadt, with the Lord's Supper, it's before what are called the Zwickau prophets came into town. We'll talk about them next week. Um, and so it doesn't look like it's really all that crazy when he gets there. It's sort of quiet, and so he doesn't really have a super accurate picture uh, but he sort of, you know, tells Karl Stott and everybody, hey, you know, I'm still alive. Uh, I'll be back eventually. Uh, be cool. Uh, don't get Frederick too upset, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and uh, so uh, this is the situation toward the end of December um, when another group shows up, the Zwickau prophets. We'll pick up, try to remember, remind me. Uh, Brick, somebody remind me uh, to pick up with the Zwickau prophets uh, on the on our next lesson. Okay, we have run out of time. All right, let's close the time. A word of prayer, Father. Once again, we do thank you for the opportunity of looking back, of seeing your work in the past. May the light that we gain from that study uh, guide us uh, through your Spirit and your Word today, as we seek to be faithful in our day. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.